Colossians 1, verse 13 to 16. For he, Jesus, delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you desiring to know you more, to learn more about you, to learn, learn more about your heart. God, to understand in a greater way why you so love the world that you gave your one and only Son. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what your Spirit has. In Jesus' name, amen. James Montgomery lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s. He followed in the footsteps of two poetic luminaries, Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley. And he's actually probably the third uh, in line of the most hymns in the Methodist uh, hymnologist six he's written. An American hymnologist, Albert Bailey, noted that one cannot necessarily call him a great poet, but he knew how to express with sincerity, fervor, simplicity, and beauty the emotions and aspirations of the common Christian. Montgomery began writing poetry at the age of 10. He was inspired by the hymns of Moravians, the same group that influenced John Wesley. And though he flunked out of school at the age 14, Montgomery found a job with a newspaper. It was actually a radical newspaper at the time, the Sheffield Register. He assumed the leadership of the paper when the owner left, the previous editor, I should say. And Montgomery then changed the name of the paper to the Sheffield Iris, and he served for 31 years as the editor might surprise you to know Montgomery was the author of maybe a Christmas hymn you've heard of, Angels from the Realms of Glory. It was first published on Christmas Eve, 1816. In that very paper, he was the editor of the Sheffield Iris. Now, interesting, this particular hymn, if you look in our hymnal, and probably 95% of hymnals, you'll find four stanzas, but you won't find the fifth. And it's a shame. The words are beautiful. Here's what he wrote. Now the first four, kind of this exuberant tone to it. The fifth stanza says this. Sinners wrung with true repentance. Doomed for guilt to endless pains. Justice now revokes your sentence. Mercy calls you, break your chains. That's powerful. But it has a little different tone to it, which is why I think people have left it out. But even though the original final stanza may seem to be ignored and left out, I think Montgomery reminds us of something important, that the nativity was more than just a sweet manger scene. It's the incarnation. And it was an event celebrating the liberation of oppressed people by a just and merciful God who took on human form. Indeed, 
the particular exhortation, come and worship. Come and worship Christ, the newborn king. Think about those words. The newborn king in the same sentence. That's a staggering thought. I want to look at that this morning and hope I do it a little justice. <laughs> Why is it important? Well, I was reminded in this in a recent the- theology survey. The result- results indicated that virtually all evangelicals affirm belief in the Trinity and the Trinitarian doctrine. 97% as a matter of fact. Now you would think that would be reflected in one's belief about God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Yet the survey revealed most evangelicals also affirm that Jesus is the first and created, first and greatest being created by God. What? How can you believe in the Trinity? Three persons of the Godhead, co-eternal, co-equal, and then at the same time, affirm that Jesus was created. Something got missed here. I mean, there's some confusion. The scriptures clear a lot up as you and I look at it. So I want to consider this wonderful mystery the Christmas story centers on. And I want to revisit it. Because I think in revisiting it, it prevents drifting, drifting into heresy. Well, this king, this newborn king, let's talk about his humanity. How could it be possible to pull off what Galatians 4.4 says? When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The son was given because he was from eternity. The baby was born because he took on human form. Humanity. Jesus had a human body. Luke 2.7 said he was born as a human baby. Luke 2.40 said he grew and became strong. Luke 2.52 says he increased in wisdom and stature. John 4.6 says he was weary. John 19.28 said he was thirsty. Matthew 4.2 said he was hungry. Luke 23 said he died. Luke 24 said he rose with a human body. Luke 24, 5 said he ascended into heaven in a human body. And then we read in Acts that he will return to earth in a human body. Jesus had a human body. He had a human mind. He increased in wisdom. Luke 2:52. Hebrews 5, 8 said he learned obedience. Acts 1:11, as we said, says he'll return to earth in that way. He had a human body. He had a human mind. Luke 13, he did not know the day of his return. Jesus had a human soul and emotions. John 12, 27, he says, my soul is troubled. John 13, 21, he was troubled in spirit. Matthew 26, 38, Jesus said he was very sorrowful, even to death. John eleven thirty five, 35, let us know he wept. Hebrews 5, 7 tells us he prayed with loud cries and tears. Hebrews 4, 15 tells us he was tempted in every way. Jesus had a human soul and emotions. People near him saw him as only a man. They saw him in Matthew 13 as a man from his own village. 
We read that his brothers and sisters at first didn't even believe in him. They saw him as just another brother, just another human being. The humanity of Christ is clear. As a human, there are weaknesses and limitations. But we also know as a human, he was sinless. Luke 4.13 tells us after 40 days, the devil brought everything he could against him, ended his temptation, and Jesus did not sin. Read John 8.29, Jesus made a statement, I am always doing, I always do what pleases God, the Father. I always do what pleases the Father. Could you say that? Always? Not even close in my case. Always. John 15, 10, I have kept my Father's commandments. You see, as a son of man, he always did what pleased the Father. Pilate says, I look and I'm not finding any crime. I don't find any fault in this guy. Acts 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 13, and other epistle verses say he's the holy one, he's the righteous one. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. The sinless substitution. The humanity of Christ also points to his sinlessness. Hebrews 4.15, he was one who in every respect has been tempted, yet was without sin. Peter said he committed no sin. John said he was Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John also said in him there was no sin. He was sinless. Didn't need to be born again in that sense. Perfect man, fully man, but sinless. We go on, that's why he's the unique one. We're told Jesus was truly tempted. He was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew 4. Hebrews 2.18 says, Because he himself has suffered and been tempted, he is able to sympathize with those who are tempted. He's able to help them. Hebrews 4.15 we had, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus, the Son of Man. The Scriptures present us with the real enfleshment of the eternal Son, who now has a full and complete human nature. And the New Testament does not does not equivocate on this truth or even leave the humanity of Christ as a matter of an implication. The Gospels lay the foundation for the incarnation. The Word became flesh. John even ascribes the spirit of the Antichrist to anyone who does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. Paul teaches that Jesus accomplishes reconciling work in the flesh and that in sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, God condemned sin in the flesh then Peter speaks of Christ as dying for us in the flesh. According to Hebrews, Christ was made lower than the angels and shared in our humanity in order to bring many sons to glory. You see, the entire weight of the New Testament bears witness to the genuineness of Jesus' humanity. Amazing to think about it. A legitimate question on a table is why was his full humanity necessary? Romans 5, 8... 18 through 19, speaks to this. Paul writes, So then as through the transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, 
the many will be made righteous. Jesus' full humanity was necessary because he became a representative to obey God on our behalf. His sacrifice would be a perfect one. He came as a substitute. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 touches on this. This powerful truth. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, Christ, also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might himself become a merciful merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in every way, he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Why was Jesus' full humanity necessary? To die for sin in our place. He took the form of a man, for only a man could die. And he destroyed the works of the devil. And so if you feel like you're in bondage to the devil, you need to refresh yourself about who your identity is in Christ. You need to refresh yourself about who this God-man is and why he came. And because he came in a human form and status of a servant and paid as a representative, as a sinless sacrifice, he's destroyed the works of the devil. You don't need to be in bondage anymore. That's good news. He came as our example and coming into a man, 1 John 2, 6, if you claim to live in Jesus, then walk as he did. In other words, Jesus came, sinless, perfect example for you and I. Amazingly, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us to a degree the pattern of our redeemed bodies we see. He came as a sympathetic priest. We need a sympathetic priest who's able to become the mediator between God and man. There is one mediator between God and man, Timothy says, the man, Christ Jesus. Luke 24, 39 tells us Jesus will be, in a sense, a man forever. His divine nature permanently united to his human nature. He lives forever, fully God and fully man. Every human being's in Adam and we're guilty. But not the last Adam, as a sinless man, Jesus was perfectly qualified to redeem fallen humanity. Worship Christ, the newborn king. The king in his humanity. But the scriptures point out the king in his deity. This king was not just a man. The baby was born, but the son was given. We know direct scriptural claims about the deity of Christ one such one is John. I know I'm throwing a lot of scripture out there. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Well, who's the identity of this Word that is God? Verse 14 tells us this Word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was God. This Word is Jesus. John 20, 28, doubting Thomas as we know him. He sees the wounds in Jesus' hands and feet. And he proclaimed, my Lord and my God, and he worshipped him, and Jesus accepted it. 
It was fitting that Thomas worship him. And yet the Old Testament tells us you shall worship only the Lord your God. And so it was fitting he was worshiped because he is God. We also know Titus 2.13, Titus refers to, or Paul refers to Jesus as our great God and Savior. Hebrews 1.8, the Father says of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever. 2 Peter 1, chapter 2 and chapter 3, Peter refers to Jesus as our God and Savior. The word God was used of Christ in the New Testament. Also, the word Lord was used of Christ. The word Lord used 6,814 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the Hebrew name Yahweh or Jehovah, the Lord. So when we read capital letter Lord, it's referring to the Old Testament, Yahweh, the Lord. That's important. Because as you and I read about the Christmas account, Luke 2.11, a Savior who is born, who is Christ. Who is this Christ? He's the Lord. Amazingly, can you imagine this account? Elizabeth called the baby in Mary's womb, Lord. Let that one sink in for a while. Matthew 3.3, John the Baptist knew he came to prepare a way for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul says there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, of the Son it was said, He is the Lord who founded the earth. And so the word God is used of Christ, the word Lord is used of Christ, and if that's not enough, there's a whole lot of other claims to deity. When the Pharisees and the religious establishment were so intimidated by Jesus, he's still intimidating people, isn't he? And he was then back then, and they're like, man, you're making these claims. And they're saying, we're children of Abraham. I don't know who you are, Jesus. We're children of Abraham. And they were feeling pretty proud about that. And Jesus said, oh, time out. Time out. You know, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, we might not think enough of that. He used God's name. Back, when, uh, back in Moses in Exodus 3, Moses said, hey, you want me to lead these people? Who, who should I tell them is sending me? God said, you tell them, I am is sending you. New Testament, Jesus says, I am. Same name. Now, if you're like, well, did they understand what he meant? Yeah, they pick up stones to stone him. <laughs> you bet they understood. And in John 10, he said, I and the Father are one. They're still looking for stones again. He claimed to be God. He even used his name. Revelation 22:13, I am who? The Alpha and Omega. Same declaration the Father made in the Old Testament. The one who is unique among humanity, the Son of Man. Interesting enough, if you read the whole flow of the Old Testament into the New Testament, and, and if you were to just study, which I'd recommend, the phrase Son of Man, and follow it all the through the scriptures, you find a flow that begins to, to kind of become very narrow in scope. Daniel speaks to the Son of Man who sits on the throne and refers to Christ. The whole flow of the Bible points to that manger when the Word became flesh. Jesus self-identified as a man who shared authority with God. The author of the law, under his covenant with Israel, interesting, the author of the law came under the law for our redemption. He knew he was God incarnate. Jesus didn't show up and say, oh man, I didn't know that. He knew. 
who he was, and he claimed it. There's evidence Jesus possessed attributes of deity. He stilled the storm. Try that one. He took loaves and fish, a couple of them, and turned it into a buffet for over 5,000. John 2 tells us he turned water to wine. Mark 2, John 1, John 6, and other passages speak of his omniscience. He knew what was in a man. He knew what men were thinking. He demonstrated omniscience. He was omnipresent. There's two or more gathered in my name. I want you to know something. I'm there. Lo, I'll be with you always, he said to his disciples. Mark 2, he showed sovereignty and authority to heal, to forgive, and he showed authority over the demonic realm. Even the demon saw him and went, "Uh uh-oh. There's one here far greater than us. Immortality. He said, you destroy this temple, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to raise it up again. Hebrews refers to his life as indestructible life. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 said, this Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. He declared to be God. Scripture refers to him as God. All those who walked with him knew who he claimed to be. Peter said, we saw his majesty. Amazing declaration. Well, there's a passage in Philippians I just want to reference really quick because it's caused great confusion in the church. Needless, unfortunately. Philippians chapter 2, the question you might have, which many have had over the years, is this, how can he be fully man and fully God? How does that work? I don't know. But I do know what Scripture says. That's where I hang my hat. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 7. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Notice the context that's important. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as the thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We'll stop there. The question is, how could he be fully God and fully man? The Greek word, there's a Greek word, kino, and it started actually mainly in the age of enlightenment, the period of enlightenment. There was an attempt to reformulate Christology. This new path, this kenotic theory, said when it looked at that word empty, which is kino, it said Jesus must have emptied himself of divine attributes. So this theory, this teaching was put forth. But the early church did not understand it that way. They never did. Matter of fact, if you read the creeds, they pointed it out very clearly. He was fully God, fully man. He didn't leave any divine attributes in heaven. He didn't quit being God or didn't leave part of God in heaven. Matter of fact, the text said, again, if we read it, it's about living in humility and the humility of Christ as our example. He says he took on him the form of a servant. And what that means is without using deity for personal comfort or benefit or to avoid facing hardships or temptations, he took the form of a servant. The text says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And the purpose of the text, again, is to encourage humility. The larger context of New Testament doctrine does not, does not support this in any way. And anyone who claims or teaches that he left deity, part of his deity, has drifted into error and needs correction before they drift into full heresy. 
This isn't saying he left his deity in heaven. He is fully God and fully man. And we'll talk in a second how that lived, played itself out. Colossians 1.19 tells us clearly, in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Notice the word fullness. Colossians 2.9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Matthew 1.23, the declaration is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why was Jesus' deity necessary? Well, if salvation is to be from the Lord, no one else could bear the penalty for our sins because it's God we offended. 1 Timothy 2.5, only someone truly fully God and fully man could be our mediator. Again, it's God we've offended. John 14.9, only God could reveal God most fully and bring us back to God. Jesus reveals God personally only if he's fully divine. To Philip, Philip said, hey, could you show us the Father? Jesus said, Philip, have I not been among you for this long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is a selfie of the Father. <laughs> if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. You've seen God. You're looking at him. Well, that was staggering to Philip, and it is to us today. Jesus' deity is so significant. 2 John 9 says, Anyone who does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Jesus made even a, a clearer statement. If you do not believe who I claim to be, and he claimed to be God, you will die in your sins. That's heavy, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you really need to believe. I mean, the scriptures are clear. You need to believe who Jesus claimed to be. Not who you make him to be. Not who the heresies over the years who Scripture says and reveals Jesus to be. The incarnation, the deity and humanity in one person. And to say we cannot understand this is appropriate humility. But to say it's not possible, that, that stinks of arrogance. So there's appropriate humility as we come across this. Now, if you combine these texts on Christ's deity and humanity, these two natures of Jesus form what theologians call the hypostatic union. And how did it play itself out when he walked this earth? Well, one nature does some, does some things, the other nature does not. The Chalcedonian Creed says the property of each nature is preserved. Jesus' human nature ascended to, to heaven and is no longer in the world, but his divine nature is everywhere. So we kind of see it play out. Some more examples. Jesus was 30 years old, Luke 3, but he also eternally existed, John 1. Jesus was weak and tired in his human nature, but his divine nature was omnipotent. He was hungry for bread in one moment, and then he multiplied bread to feed thousands in another moment. He was thirsty in one moment, and then he walked on the very water he was thirsty for in another moment. While Jesus was asleep in the boat, he also continually carried along all things by the word of his power, as Hebrews tells us. Jesus' human nature died, but his divine nature did not die because he's able to raise himself up from the dead, he tells us in John 10. Jesus' human consciousness did not know the time of his return, but his divine consciousness knew all things. Jesus' human will was tempted, but his divine will could not be tempted, James 1.13. As we put that together, anything either nature does, the person of Christ does. Things true of one nature, but not the other, nonetheless, are true of the person of Christ. 
In Jesus, we have the perfect union, the perfect wedding of the deity and humanity coexisting in one person without being mixed or confused in any way. That's why he's the son of man and the son of God. That's why he's a unique man. And that's why people worshipped him. The incarnate one was not simply a man in whom God dwelt, or even a man uniquely empowered by the Spirit of God. Instead, Jesus of Nazareth is God the Son living personally on earth and experiencing what it meant to be human for us and for our salvation. And salvation is of the Lord. And unless it's the Lord who comes, suffers, and dies on the cross, then his death would have no power to accomplish our salvation. The Son, the incarnate Son as the second person of the Godhead, did this by taking a human nature with its divine range of capacities into his own divine person, alongside the divine nature that he had eternally possessed. Yeah, it, it's, we humbly approach it, do our best to understand it. But we look at Scripture and put it together and are left with only one, one really appropriate response. James Montgomery was right. Come and worship. Come and worship Christ, the newborn king. The honor that Jesus has gained for himself will last for eternity and includes not only human beings, but angelic beings as well. Every person who has ever lived will bow in honor of Jesus Christ, either voluntary in worship and submission or involuntarily at the final judgment. But every knee will bow before the King of glory. Jesus invites you and I to bow our knees and our hearts before him as Savior and Lord. And then to follow him as Lord of our lives. Then when we meet him in heaven, and walk down heaven's hall of fame. There's only going to be one set of handprints, only one set of footprints there, and they'll belong to Jesus Christ. Those prints will bear the marks of nails because he was nailed to the cross for our sins. And as we see those nail-scarred hands and feet through all of eternity, we'll be reminded that Jesus is worthy of all praise, all honor, and glory. We will give eternal praise to Jesus Christ, the celebrity of the universe, the mighty King, the incarnate Son of God. Come and worship. Come and worship Christ, the newborn King. Amen and amen.